Hey friends, this episode of The Fellow on Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy! Welcome to another episode of The Fellow on Call, the Hemong Podcast. We're coming at you from Rulo University Medical Center. I'm Ronak. I'm Vivek. And I'm Dan. And in today's episode, which is the first of our two-part radiation oncology series of episodes as part of our lung cancer episodes. We are so excited to have with us a radiation oncologist joining us from Vanderbilt University Medical Center, Dr. Evan Osmondson, who just has an abundance of information to share with you all listeners. You're in for a treat. Yeah, I'm really excited about this episode. I, I learned myself a lot about the basics of radiation oncology you know, how things works logistically. And this, the first part of this two-part episode on radiation oncology is just going to focus on foundational basics of radiation oncology with little tidbits about thoracic oncology. And then in our part two episode, we're really going to do a deeper dive into the nuances of, of thoracic oncology, talking about things like hyperfractionated regimens and what chemotherapy plus radiation looks like and how to actually think about things like SBRT for the definitive treatment of lung cancer. Yeah, I mean, he is just a wellspring of knowledge. I really envy the docs over at Vanderbilt having access to a guy like that. And, you know, listeners, I think that one of the things that we'd like to do before we roll to the episode is just to find a few key terms that you may hear used throughout this discussion. And so hopefully this facilitates your understanding of what we're going to talk about. So the first term is the term fraction. So as you may know, a, a a dose of radiation, a collective dose of radiation is needed for treatments of certain types of cancer. A fraction is just how the radiation oncologists break up that overall dose into smaller pieces. So a fraction. The next part is the term gray. And gray is just a unit of measure for the the amount of radiation energy that's being delivered in each session. Exactly. And, And that's very important for the type of radiation therapy that we're talking about. And any time that we don't otherwise specify, the type of radiation therapy we're talking about in this episode is X-ray therapy or photon therapy. That is that's to say we're not going to cover brachytherapy where you implant uh, radioactive seeds into somebody's tissue. It's, we're not talking about radiopharmaceuticals where there's a radioactive atom tagged on to a certain delivery molecule, just external X-ray beams shooting through a patient. And it's important to note that as a result of using X-rays therapeutically, That means that when we have a CT scan to sort of plan out our radiation, it's a direct parallel. So the the densities seen in the body by that X-ray beam that's that's forming the CT image are going to behave the same way uh, in terms of absorption as the therapeutic beam. And so uh, that's an important concept to understand that CTs represent a map of electron densities. And lastly, X-ray therapy exerts its effect by ionizing, ionizing ionizable molecules in the body. And those sort of radicals that are formed then go on to do the damage that causes the therapeutic effect and in higher doses, the deleterious effect that we associate with radiation absorption. Oftentimes that's oxygen and the superoxide radical that results is sort of the, uh, the effector molecule in this case. That's part of the reason why deoxygenated or poorly vascularized tumors may not be as sensitive to radiation as, as, other tissue, as other types of tumor. 
And the last thing that I just wanted to mention to everybody is at some point, we're going to be talking about the new proton therapy. And the big thing to understand about proton radiation versus photon or x-ray, the, the standard radiation that we're going to focus the chunk of our talk on, is that when we think about using these radiation modalities, these radiation oncologists and physicists phase the radiation to deliver as much of this dose of radiation to the tumor itself while protecting surrounding structures. However, after the radiation passes through the tumor, it ha it decays and sort of drops off its dose through the tissues as it exits the body. With photon therapy, there's sort of a, a, a slower drop-off, but with proton therapy, you get something called a quote-unquote brag peak, meaning that you have a small amount of radiation dose delivered until you reach the tumor and you have a massive spike and then have a rapid drop-off. So you have, in theory, less toxicity to surrounding structures. So proton therapy, more radiation to the tumor volume itself with less side effect to the surrounding tissues due to the radiation dose escalation very quickly and de-escalation very quickly as it exits the patient's body. However, we don't have a lot of data on this, and we're going to talk about the nuances of proton therapy versus photon therapy in part two of this series. And then the last term we just wanted to define for you all as well is you'll hear about radiosensitizing chemotherapy. And often when we use chemotherapy in conjunction with radiation for treatments of cancer patients, we are using small doses of chemotherapy relative to a treatment dose. And the idea here is that it makes the body and the tumor more receptive to the deleterious effects of radiation. So we are sensitizing those cancer cells to the radiation, hence radiosensitizing chemotherapy. And so hopefully that helps you all better follow the discussion that's about to be had. And so without further ado, let's roll the show. Well, listeners, we are so excited to welcome our guest today, Dr. Evan Osmondson, um, who's here from Vanderbilt University Medical Center. Dr. Osmondson, welcome to our show. Thank you. I'm very pleased to be here. Uh, Dr. Osmondson, could you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself as well as we always like to ask our guests a fun fact about themselves as well? Mm -hmm. I am a thoracic and uh, lymphoma specialist. I'm a radiation oncologist at Vanderbilt. Uh, University Medical Center. Um, I'm also the medical director of our facility. Um, I've been at Vanderbilt for about six and a half, seven years now. In terms of a fun fact, I uh, actually really enjoy uh, drawing and, and doing artwork. And um, in college, I helped support myself by selling some of my artwork. So uh, that's kind of a fun fact that a lot of people don't uh, don't know about me. That's awesome. Nice. Very cool. But was it watercolor, oil? What was your What was your go-to? I did um, some oil paints, and then I also did some pen and ink. And then I, I did a little bit of graphic design as well. I had a, interestingly, I had a buddy who was a race car driver, and we made some uh, specific decals for some uh, race car teams. Uh, so that was a lot of fun, totally out there, but a lot of fun. That's awesome. Nice. That's really awesome. Cool. All right. So uh, what, what I want to do is start us off with a, with a case presentation, and then we're going to ask Dr. Osmondson questions about the basics of radiation oncology and then build up to a couple of questions about specifically thoracic radiation while we're in this lung cancer series. So let's say we have a 65-year-old male who has a past medical history of tobacco use disorder and hypertension, 
And in our previous episodes, we talked about what we do when we see lung nodules. And he had a growing lung nodule over the past six months that went from two centimeters to 2.5 centimeters. And in that meantime, they were trying to, his primary care provider was trying to get him into pulmonary. He saw pulmonary, they got a PET CT scan, and it just showed that he had localized disease. And as we talked about before, pulmonary ended up doing an EBUS with biopsy. And that ultimately got him to a diagnosis of lung adenocarcinoma that had a 2.5 centimeter tumor and no lymph node involvement when they did mediastinal staging with their EBUS. So we kind of have a, a localized lung cancer in this case. So th this gentleman actually was very much against going through surgery, and we talked about one of the definitive ways we treat lung cancer is through radiation treatment. So the first thing I wanted to start off was asking Dr. Osmondson, you know, when we make a referral to radiation oncology, what, what what's the first step that takes place? And can you walk us through the process of us putting in the consult and the patient actually getting planned for radiation treatment? Sure. Once a, a consult goes in, you know, our front office team will arrange a time for the patient to come in and see us. If it's an internal consult, we typically have all the records that we need that are available to us. If it's an external consult, our PSS team, patient service specialists, will try to locate all the records because it's very important to gather all the imaging information, <clears throat> which will help us determine whether or not it's feasible to do SBRT. Uh, that's that's uh, treatment with radiation. We see the patient in clinic and we take a look at all the imaging and make sure that the patient has been appropriately staged because we all know we want to make sure that we're giving the patient standard of care therapy. Once a patient's completely staged and we think that radiation is a modality that would benefit the patient, we talk to the patient about it, we get informed consent, and then we set them up for what's called a CT simulation scan. And basically that is a radiation therapy planning scan that we use to help plan the radiation therapy. And we simulate the precise position that the patient is going to be in during radiation treatment planning. The CT simulation scan is also important, not just to sort of model the patient's setup, but also to understand the specific distribution of the tumor relative to the internal organs, uh, the organs at risk that, that we want to avoid with radiation. And also when we plan our radiation therapy, we actually use the density of the CT scan to help us uh, determine how our radiation beams are attenuated as they pass through the patient to make sure that the tumor is getting the right dose. So once we get that, that scan in place, it takes about a week and a half to plan the radiation. We sort of work behind the scenes with our physicists and our dosimetrists through an iterative process to come up with a plan that maximizes the dose to the tumor and minimizes the dose to normal structures as much as possible. Once a plan is acceptable in the silico, we then actually run the plan on our machines with sort of a dummy, it's called a phantom, that makes sure that what we're seeing on the computer is what we're getting in real life. And then after that QA takes place, we bring the patient in and they start their radiotherapy. And so that, that dummy, is that, that's a physical object that you're running these tests on? Yeah, it's a physical object that has um, sensors in it that allows us to, for lack of a better term, that it really allows us to make sure that within a certain margin of error, the, the plan that we develop on the computer, that we model on the computer based on the CT simulation scan is what we would likely get in real life. And to make sure that the plan is actually deliverable, the machine is capable of delivering the plan. We are as a field moving more towards a second computerized QA process. 
but many places, including Vanderbilt, we will uh, do both. We, we still like to check it uh, actually on the machine. And the important point here is that's one of the reasons why it may take a while to plan the radiation. And this is important for fellows and folks to understand because, you know, if, if for example, we want to start with concurrent chemo radiation or we want to get a patient on a clinical trial, it's important to incorporate the radiation oncologist early because modern treatment planning takes some time for this reason. Yeah, that makes sense. And so, you know, you, we kind of talked about, uh, so we referred this patient to you, and, and we've talked about in previous episodes, one of the ways that we treat lung cancers with this definitive SBRT or stereotactic body radiotherapy, sometimes called SABR or stereotactic ablative radiotherapy. So in, in this case, you, you mentioned that CT simulation scan. So is it really just important that you repeat that scan because you would need to know exactly what the lung's doing in a specific position that the patient will be in? Absolutely. That's, that's one of the main reasons is that we, um, <clears throat> we need to see how that tumor uh, exists in the body uh, relative to other organs in the treatment position. And the radiotherapy machines move around the patient. They can essentially, modern ones can move around the patient at 360 degrees, but most of our treatments are coplanar. And so patient, for example, we're treating the lung, arms will be up in the air. And so as you can imagine, the patient's anatomical position may change from what we saw on our initial diagnostic CT scan or the PET CT scan. The other thing is that we model our, our radiation plans in silico on the CT scan itself. And really what we're looking at is an electron density map is really what kind of what a CT scan is to us. The, the radiation beam will be attenuated differently, as you can imagine, whether it passes through bone, which uh, is pretty thick, or, or air, empty space. And so if we really want to precisely target the tumor, we need to know how each of our little beamlets will behave as it passes through the patient. And then finally, since we're talking about lung, I'll, I'll mention that, um, you know, as you can imagine, this is not, this is a moving target. So patients are breathing and these tumors are moving. And so there's a lot of different motion management strategies that we can use to try to make sure that we're capturing that envelope of motion as the tumor moves, as the patient breathes. So we do what's called a 4D CT simulation scan. So a lot goes into the, the planning process and uh, you know, you can't really get a great plan unless you get a great CT simulation. Got it. So I always wondered why it was called 4D CT simulation, and it's because you're taking account the motion while breathing. Is that fair to say? That's correct. It's, uh, it's you know, XYZ dimension plus time. That's awesome. It sounds like regardless of the prior imaging that's done, there is still a lot of specialized imaging and such that you guys will do for the purposes of planning. What sort of guidance do you have for us as the oncologist in terms of what sorts of imaging modalities are helpful for us to ensure that our patients have before they come over to your office? So obviously all the diagnostic scanning that we need to appropriately stage the patient, and you guys are well-versed on that. But beyond that, you know, if we're going to do something where we're going to do stereotactic treatments to the brain... Or if we're going to be doing, you know, stereotactic treatments to the spine, if a patient has a spine tumor and we're considering high-dose treatment, you know, a, a, a really nice MRI uh, with and without gadolinium is, is really helpful in those regions and typically done in a thin-slice manner, especially in the brain. Stereotactic radiosurgery and stereotactic body radiotherapy are essentially similar concepts. We're giving very high doses 
in a, in a small number of treatments uh, with very rapid dose drop-off to the tumor. And so we really want to be very precise, particularly in the brain. And so we really need very thin-slice MRIs. So a thin-slice MRI with and without gadolinium that is at least one to millimeter sections is super helpful uh, when we talk about SRS to the brain. And then, you know, depending upon the site, sometimes, for example, prostate cancer, it's useful to get an MRI because we'd like to see if there's any extra capsular extension or seminal vesicle invasion. But, you know, most of the time, if you get the patients in to see us soon enough, we're able to usually usually get that. Probably the big one, because brain mets are so important to address quickly, is a thin slice MRI of the brain. And and when we get that thin slice MRI of the brain, I mean, that makes so much sense. If you're delivering such high doses of radiation, you want to be very, very exact and precise about where you're targeting the, the, those beams. Is that something that we should pick up the phone and tell the radiation oncologist? Let's say that we're at a different facility and, you know, you're referring to an, a radiation oncologist that's not in the same facility necessarily. Is that a good idea for us to pick up the phone and say, hey, we got the thin slice MRI you know, does your office want to start getting the process to get those images? I yeah, certainly. I, I think communication between um, subspecialists is is always a good thing. Most of the time, if um, the practice is well run, they'll have some folks who are really good at identifying what is um, uh, needed for for any particular patient consult. But um, certainly, getting on the phone and saying, "Hey, we, we you know we got this thin slice MRI." You know, the thing that we out, you have to be careful of is that sometimes, you know, the quality of the thin slice MRI may not be as good depending upon the facility it's done at. So, you know, I, I think once once folks get into practice, they start to develop an understanding of right, wh- which imaging facilities are capable of doing advanced imaging and wh- which are not. But that all comes with, with you know, experience uh, and with your practice partners. You know, Dr. Osmond, since uh, I, I often have patients bring up this mask fitting situation. And I think this kind of goes back to your points about us also evaluating the patient in time and and also ensuring that they're not, you know, swiveling around on a table and things like that. Could you just help us better understand what the mask fitting and what the mask even is? Because the first time someone said that to me, I was like, I have absolutely no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, the name of the game in modern radiotherapy is precision. And as you alluded to, it's very important for patients to be in the same position every single time during treatment. And um, it's especially so when you have a lot of very critical structures packed into a particular, uh, you know, uh, region of the body, such as the head and neck or the brain. And so, we use what's called a thermoplastic mask to help keep patients in the same position every day, their head and neck cancer patients or patients where we're treating their brain, patients were doing stereotactic radiosurgery. And it's, it's super, super important because even if a patient really, really tries hard, there's going to be day-to-day changes. Um, some of these treatments take on the order of, you know, five to 15 minutes. And so you can imagine they might be moving. And, you know, when you're trying to have rapid dose drop off within millimeters of precision, if you're treating a tumor near the brainstem, that can be very important. So I'll sort of preface the discussion a little bit about saying that in the old days, they used to use, um, you know, a rigid structure that they would bolt to the skull. 
for old style uh, radio surgery. And um, we used to have neurosurgery involved and things like that. That was before That's my crazy. Time. Yeah. yeah, it's pretty wild, actually. And, and surprisingly, uh, so I hear. Uh, patients tolerated it relatively well. Um, wow. So whatever that means, but <laughs> um, <laughs> I guess it depends who you ask. <laughs> that's right. That's right. 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 Did they ask the patients that? And so um, now we're able to to use these um, thermoplastic masks. And basically, it starts out as a thin sheet of plastic with a lot of holes in it. Put it in warm water and get it up to a certain temperature, and then we drape it over the patient's face, and it molds to their unique anatomy. And we generally want to, depending on what we're treating, we want to have the patient in a particular position. For example, if we're treating laryngeal cancer, we want their chin up. It really depends on on the scenario, but it takes about maybe you know 15 minutes for that to sort of mold, and we basically affix that to the table each day the patient's treated. And it, it can be challenging, you know. During my residency, one of the I, I was really great. I had an opportunity to actually undergo that process just to try it. And it can be kind of nerve wracking. Uh, it, it certainly can be nerve wracking, but it's very, very important. And, you know, reproducibility day to day is really dependent upon the setup. So very important to, to immobilize patients uh, in this way. So to add on to that, then, it, and you were kind of alluding to this, but I just want to clarify, is a mask required for all sorts of radiation or is it more so for like the things related to the head and neck and the brain? Yeah, it's. Um, I think that the the key concept here is immobilization. Stable immobilization is required for all all radiation therapy treatments. And in in the thorax, uh, what we'll typically do is we'll put patients and sort of like lay them in this bean bag and suck the air out of the bean bag and it molds around them. Their arms are above their head. Sometimes we'll put a belt on their belly or a plate that limits respiratory motion and keeps them from moving. If we're treating tumors of the extremity, sometimes we take that thermoplastic mask, so to speak, and lay it over their knee and then, um, you know, immobilize the leg in that way if we're doing very precise treatment. So it really depends upon the level of precision we need, but it's especially important in the brain. There's so much important uh, normal tissue there. Not that not that all normal tissue is not important, but um, so important there, especially if we're doing very high doses. So where we see the mask and where it tends to bother people the most is in the head and neck area and uh but it's it's, it's absolutely essential yeah i i don't think you'll find much uh higher value real estate in the uh in the human anatomy than than brain tissue that that makes a lot of sense and one of the other things i always wondered and and i just want let, to let's just keep this one thoracic focused for this question you know we always talk about maximum doses of radiation in a certain area that a patient can get how do you determine that is there a strict cutoff or you know, does, does it have to do with what imaging looks like? How do you determine what a maximum dose of radiation in the mediastinal area is? Yeah, um, in a broader sense, you know, maximum dose of radiation to any particular tissue is really dependent upon the radio tolerance of that particular tissue and is dependent upon, in some cases, the way the organ is structured. So, for example, we consider um, a lung tissue to be a, a massively parallel organ where you have multiple functional units that are essentially working the same. But on the other hand, the bronchial tree is what we call a serial structure. So that if we ablate a part of the, the lung, yes, you'll reduce your lung function a bit, but you can still function. Whereas if we ablate the trachea or something like that, then, then suddenly the whole structure fails. 
And so when we talk about mediastinal structures, we're really worried about a lot of those tubular structures and each specific serial structures that have specific maximum dose tolerances. It's almost impossible to irradiate the mediastinum without irradiating part of the spinal cord. And that is first and foremost, the thing that we worry about the most. There have been various, um, you know, retrospective studies looking at dose tolerances to the spinal cord in upfront radiation, as well as re-irradiation. And based on uh, accumulated evidence, uh, we have an idea of what, in general, the, uh, the spinal cord can tolerate, which is considered to be sort of a serial structure, both upfront radiation and down the line. And so we have an idea of what we can give. Um, but sometimes we don't know what we can limit the the uh, these critical structures to into, until we actually do a radiation plan. So, for example, if I have a patient who was treated with a mediastinum before, and um, you know they have a recurrence there, I have a general sense of whether or not I could consider radiation. But it's not until I actually do the planning that I'll know for sure what the what the precise risk is, and really where that comes from is just. Um, empiric data, just accumulated evidence. You know, there is, you know, this a patient has sometimes will have recurrent um, primary lung cancer um, in the same field. One of the things is, is if it's within a year, it's very challenged to re-irradiate with full dose. But if it's been longer to period of time, there's a certain amount of recovery and I can consider re-irradiation. So there's a lot of factors that go into it. One thing that's very important, though, is that you really have to talk to the patient about the risks and, and make sure you have informed consent because re-radiation is always risky. You can mitigate those risks, but it's always risky. Got it. So, so I think one of the things that uh, is important for us to know as oncologists, and I didn't really think about as much as the timing from last radiation, that it's not just the patient got radiation in a certain area, but has it recurred in six months or has this actually been three years? And that, that can make a difference, which is important for us to know as we, we send people to radiation oncology. Yeah, and, and, and it's, it's also important to, to understand that different radiation oncology practices will have different tolerance of, of risk. Um, generally speaking, a, you know, a specialty center like Vanderbilt or you know, other academic centers um, may have a little bit more tolerance for risks uh, because um, often the, the, the physicians there are more subspecialized and are a little bit more experienced doing that. So certainly I think a, a, re, a repeat consult is warranted. Um, and sometimes, um, you know, a second consult with uh, a very experienced center might be warranted as well. And so when you're meeting a patient for the first time, you know, getting ready to start them on a, a treatment plan for a thoracic tumor, what, what are sort of the major immediate side effects and longer term side effects that you're going to counsel them on? Well, I, I think it really depends upon the, the type of treatment we're going to give. So if we're talking about the gentleman that in the case that you guys had discussed, if we're doing stereotactic ablative radiotherapy and the tumor is sort of sitting out in the middle of the lung, most of the time, uh, patients tolerate this very, very well. You know, many patients hop off the treatment table after stereotactic ablative radiation, and they say, "Doc, are you sure you turned that radiation beam on?" I say, "Oh, yes, yes, we did." And uh, but people will notice a little fatigue, maybe about a week or so after treatment. It's a little bit delayed. It's not debilitating fatigue, but they might feel like they need to take a nap or go to bed a little bit earlier. And then probably, you know, assuming that this is just sitting out in the middle of the lung and not really near 
a lot of critical organs, down the line, there's a risk of developing something called radiation pneumonitis. You know, radiation is going to cause inflammation of the normal lung. As the tumor cells die and you get tumor infiltration with scavenger cells and immune cells, that's going to exacerbate that inflammation. So a certain amount of inflammation is expected, but for some reason, some patients get quite a bit of inflammation. And it's a delayed response that usually doesn't happen before six to eight weeks, but can happen at any time up to a year. And patients will experience uh, almost like pneumonia symptoms, some cough, some shortness of breath, maybe even a low-grade fever if it's significant. Um, So I counsel them on that to make sure that they understand that if that happens, we really want to hear about it. And the reason is, is I have, you know, several anecdotes, anecdotal stories where patients will get this, these these symptoms, and then they'll just think, well, I'm having another pneumonia. A lot of these patients have comorbidities. They go to the PCP who gets an x-ray, they see haziness, they treat them with antibiotic one, doesn't get better, treat with antibiotic two, doesn't get better. So it's really important to understand that that's a risk. The, the risk of that happening is dependent upon the volume of lung irradiated and the dose, the dose of, the, of, of radiation, and also on the baseline pulmonary function of the patient. So if you treat a large tumor, higher risk, the patient has poor pulmonary function, maybe you're already on oxygen, they are less tolerant of radiation pneumonitis. Radiation pneumonitis can also happen in patients who get more long-course therapy, concurrent chemoradiotherapy, such as we give for locally advanced lung cancer. That's lung cancer that involves the lymph nodes of the chest. You know, the treatment for that is typically steroids. It becomes a little more challenging nowadays in patients who who get standard of care immunotherapy after uh, treatment with concurrent uh, chemoradiotherapy because um, we know there's such a tremendous survival benefit by keeping them on that, at least most patients, that we really like to not do that and have to pull them off. So it becomes a little bit of a dilemma. So just sort of getting back to those side effects, we have both acute and delayed. I'll talk a little bit about some of the acute side effects of treatment with concurrent chemoradiotherapy for locally advanced disease. In this case, we're giving small doses each day over the course of about six weeks. Again, these side effects are cumulative. Many times they don't really uh, creep up until week two or three. Sometimes patients notice a slight increased cough when we start. They, they start to notice some fatigue and radiation esophagitis. You know, many of the structures that we need to treat or the, the lymph nodes that we need to treat are right up next, next to the swallowing tube, the esophagus. And so patients will get radiation esophagitis. And in the old days, and I say old days, this is probably before my time, many, many patients would have to get a G2 with old treatment planning techniques. But nowadays with intensity modulated radiation therapy. It's a fancy planning technique where we're really able to pull dose off the, the, uh, off of the normal structures. Very few patients, if any, really need a feeding tube. And we usually get patients through with just some, some, some heartburn. There are other rare side effects. People can get pericarditis, a few other things, but those are usually the major side effects. One, one important thing I'd, I'd like to clarify is that many patients come in and they hear from their, their colleagues, like or not their colleagues, their family members, or maybe have friends. They say, Doc, when I, I heard that I'm going to get all burned up in my chest, my skin's going to turn brown and black and things like that. And that's typically not what happens when we do modern radiotherapy uh, for lung cancer. And it has to do with the way that we deliver the radiation with modern techniques and deposits the dose deeply. So it's really rare unless we're treating a superclavicular area, which is very close to the skin where patients really get a lot of skin toxicity from radiation therapy. So those are really the the major side effects um, that that we really have have to work with. 
Wow, that was a, that was a fantastic discussion. I'm I'm so excited for for round two next week, and just our tremendous thanks to Dr. Osmondson for being here with us today. All right, guys. Well, then, until next time, we'll see you later. See you later. Peace.